how do you increase revenue from a wholesale standpoint? How do you maintain and increase revenue from a retail standpoint, especially if you're not growing that retail footprint? How do you maintain revenue with falling prices? How do you speak to your customer base and understand your customer base and maintain them and then grow that? This is The Dime. Dive into the cannabis and hemp industry through trends, insights, predictions, and tangents. What's up, guys? Welcome back to an episode of The Dime. I'm Brian Fields. With me, as always, is Kellen Finney. And this week, we've got a very special guest, Gabe Mendoza, EVP of Revenue at Forefront Ventures. Gabe, thanks for taking the time. How are you doing today? Happy to be here. Negative uh, 14 degrees in Chicago, so I'm happy to be inside with you guys today. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Kellen, how are you doing? Doing really well. Really excited to talk to Gabe, get the whole backstory on Forefront, you know, everything they're doing. It's nice to have someone who would love to live and loves the West Coast, you know, Brian? You're absolutely right about that. And there's no doubt that loving to live on the West Coast something, but I know something that Gabe loves more than wanting to live on the West Coast, and that's his mom. And I think just East Coast, West Coast battle. Gabe, if you had a loyalty to either the weather or to your mom, which one would you choose? Well, now that you brought my mom into this, I guess I have to say East Coast. Yeah, my mom was born in Brooklyn, uh, Bed-Stuy, and I've opened up a handful of dispensaries on the East Coast. So if I had to choose, mom, I'm choosing you, East Coast. That's fair. Batman. That's fair. That's fair. That's fair. So, Gabe, for our listeners, unfamiliar about you, give a little background about yourself and how you got into the cannabis space. Yeah. So, I entered into the industry in 2013 when Illinois was just passing its medical law. I got together with a team and applied for and won both a dispensary and a cultivation license here in the state. I'm very fortunate to do that. And I was then able to parlay that into selling the controlling interest to Forefront Ventures, who then took me along this magical ride where I opened up 14 dispensaries in seven different states. We obviously went public and the rest is kind of history. And so it's been a long ride with plenty of experience. And it started here in Illinois, which is where I'm based. And it has taken me all over the country, including Arkansas. And that is a that's a that's an interesting story. I'll tell you guys either now or later. Yeah, I think that might be the first time that state's been dropped in this podcast. So I'd be curious to know, hey, how you got there? And then we can dive deeper into Forefront's kind of origin. So uh, we were the third dispensary in Arkansas to be open. And it was in a little town called Clinton, Arkansas. And it was a dry county, except for us and the restaurant that served alcohol right next to it. And we had open interviews and spent 12 hours in the local gymnasium interviewing every single person seemingly that that town had even the head of zoning and planning he sat down in front of us and i said buddy you've got to approve our zoning you can't you can't be an employee here you've got to go approve our zoning man and so that was uh it was amazing how quickly we got that thing open. We got it open in three months. Arkansas was really amenable, but just interviewing an entire town over 12 hours showed you, you know, how much people really love cannabis, how much they believe in this and how much they wanted to be a part of the industry. So it was very humbling, but man, that was a long day. So there was excitement, you're saying, from, from the people in that town to be a part of this because one could envision it could be quite the opposite, right? Where the protesters are outside saying, absolutely not. This is a dry county. This is a dry town. Like this doesn't happen here. Very surprised, very surprised at the outcome. You know, if you and when you look in, in in Arkansas, it actually has a really rich 
uh, underground growing history. And so there was a lot of people that have had, had come from that and they wanted to just be a part of something legal and in the open. And we were able to hire a really kick-ass team and they were able to, to just really crush it and being obviously first mover in Arkansas helped as well. Yeah, absolutely. So let's go back to Forefront, right? One of the oldest, if not the oldest, I'm not so familiar with some of the history here because we're predating me for sure. When did Forefront get started and take us through kind of the evolution of it from the early days to kind of where we are now? Yeah, so that's I think that's one of our really unique differentiators here is that we started Forefront started in 2011. It started as a uh, application writing consultancy where we were helping people all over the country write their applications. Um, we had developed a, a really robust set of SOPs from Harborside. We partnered with Harborside, which for many of the listeners who know that it's it's a it was founded in Oakland and, and had a was one of the first really legitimate dispensary chains. And so we worked with them to create these SOPs. And we took these SOPs and we started to uh, apply and win these licenses. Once we had won about sixty of these, we started to ask ourselves, well, hey we're pretty good at this. Why don't we go ahead and do this ourselves? And so that's what that's what we did. And we started by uh, winning and acquiring licenses in, in Illinois. And then we took that we took that roadshow and we went into Pennsylvania. We went into Massachusetts. We acquired stuff in Arizona, Arkansas, Michigan. And so it really started in 2011. We were able to take that and parlay that into actually opening and running our own licenses. And the amount of time that we spent in this industry has helped us really hone in what we think on the industry and has helped us evolve because, you know, what we thought in 2011 and what is the reality in 2024, quite different, right? And so it, it's been a blessing to be able to be around for this long. So, I mean, that sounds like a, a very sophisticated team in terms of the um tasks that you guys were undertaking in the early days. And so was that one of like the biggest motivating factors for you kind of jumping on board with Forefront when you did sell your cannabis assets at the time was, can you kind of talk us through what actually was the motivating factor for you to jump onto their ship? Yeah. I mean, when you looked at their portfolio and looked at what they had helped to do, and, and when I was in Illinois, looking at the, the options for us, they had helped win a handful of licenses in Illinois. And so when I was looking to find a strategic partner, I could not have found someone better than them, not to mention they had the capital to 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 back this thing up, which was huge, right? I mean, when we started, it was a, hey, let's cobble together some money from local our, our local friends and family to apply for this. And we had, you know, we had no idea the amount of capital intensivity that this would be. And and so I was so grateful that that we had someone that had the experience and had the capital to to get us through to the end. Is it just wild thinking back on it when you first got started in the space and then like just everything that you've had to go through just to get to that moment? Because I could see in your face like the feelings that and the emotion that came rushing back when you thought about that. It is, you know, when we first applied, right? I mean, there was no guarantee that we were going to win anything, right? So I quit my full-time job to do this and to get paid significantly less to just work my butt off uh, to try to apply for these things. And when we won, then it was like, well, oh, sh what, what's next? How do we, what do you even value something at this at, right? There's no comparables for this. It's like, okay, we won a license. What are we going to value this thing at? And it was me and my CEO and one other individual. And we just figured this thing out from the ground up. And we were very proud of what we had built, right? I mean, we we found these locations and we started to build these things out. And then once you're cutting 
$500,000 checks to your lawyers. And you're like, what is happening here? Where's all the money going? You start to realize, okay, we're going to need to to really get even more sophisticated on this because this is something that is way more costly and way more time consuming than we ever thought. It took us a year to get open our first dispensary through the zoning process in Chicago, because every time we would look, there would be groups of individuals who would come in busloads to the city hall, to city hall and say, not in my backyard. We're okay with this. And of course they had actual political aspirations against the, the aldermen. We call them aldermen in our areas. And so there was so many different layers of complexity to this that we were just like, hey, we just wanted to open up a dispensary and a a cultivation center and help as many people as possible. How are we getting involved in the city politics where it's taking us a year and tens and tens of thousands of dollars just to find a location? So yeah, there's a lot, there's a rich history uh, that that comes with being in the industry for this long. And those are my favorite points, right? Because you you won the license and now comes the actual hardest part, which is like, there's no roadmap. There's no really Googling for like, okay, like how to open a dispensary. And if there is, it's probably not applicable for like what you're trying to accomplish, given all these challenges. And then you have these small fun details, right? Where people are busloading in to dispute like where you can get zoned, which is just, again, not something I bet you you processed internally when you wanted to get started and then apply for that license. Never, right? I mean, the, the, it has been something, I mean, the ability to just absorb and learn from these lessons is, is paramount, right? Because you do not want to have to footfall again and again and again. And that's something that, again, is very unique to us because of our longevity here. We've been able to take these things and really understand them and take what we've learned and apply it to new states and apply it to new municipalities so that we don't make these these same mistakes. I love it. So let's get overall top level assets so people can see like forefront this is where they're positioned this is where their their assets are give us just a rough breakdown of those yep so we've got a cult we have cultivation in washington you can't be vertical in washington the state of washington so uh washington was really our bread and butter where we started to understand our cultivation processes where we had to understand because of the market and how highly competitive it is that you need to understand cost structure you need to be able to be competitive from a pricing standpoint um, while also maintaining quality and branding as well. So Washington is where we we started from our cultivation side. In Illinois, we have two retail licenses. We have a third, fourth, and fifth on the way. And I can talk to you more about that. But we're starting construction on our, our third one next week. And we have a cultivation center right now in Illinois. It is, it's uh, on the smaller side. So we are we're in the process right now. We're moving by by the end of this year, even before the end. We're going to be inside of a new facility, which is going to be 250,000 square feet, 40,000 square feet of canopy, which is a 5x of our current canopy. And so that's going to we're really digging deep into Illinois because we have the ability to to scale here. And so transfer, transferring to Massachusetts. We've got three dispensaries in Massachusetts. We also have three Grove processing facilities. So that's a max. We've maxed out in Massachusetts. Uh, we're, we're really excited about the locations that we have. We continue to see uh, customer growth and even the price compression that you're experiencing in Massachusetts. We're actually not experiencing that as much because of the product differentiation that we have. People are buying more from us. And so that's, I think that's kind of bucking the trend with a lot of the, the other state stores in Massachusetts. So Washington, Illinois, Massachusetts. And so across those three states, do you guys try to like maintain similar product SKUs? 
um, like kind of talk us through how you maintain your guys' product portfolio in each state. And if it's like, hey, Illinois, we're vertically integrated. We have more room to grow. We're trying more new products. Kind of like talk us through how all of that works. Yeah. So in Illinois, where we we have been only flower in Illinois up until this point because we didn't want to spend CapEx on equipment that wasn't going to be scalable for the big grow. So essentially we're only doing flower, but in when we grow into uh, Matson, which is where the location is going to be, we are going to bring our full portfolio, which is going to be all of the brands that we've created in Washington, which is essentially what we do. So we have created these brands in Washington. We've tested them out. We understand what demographics they speak to. And then we launch them into Massachusetts and we launch them into Illinois. And so that's kind of the, the process, if you will, where we test these things in, in Washington because of its high, uh, high level of competition. It helps us really understand what's going to work and what's not. Obviously, the, the, the Washington consumer and the Illinois consumer and the Massachusetts consumer are different, but it does help us to get a sense of what's going to work and at what price is it going to work? And so that's where that's when we bring them into states like Illinois and Massachusetts. Is there products like in Washington where you're like, hey, this was targeted towards like an older population. We launched it here. Yeah, there's not a ton of older demographic individuals living in this geographic region. But here in Massachusetts at this dispensary, there is. Do you guys like try to like try to play those kind of games with certain products? Oh, for sure. I mean, we when we create a product, we have a certain customer in mind, a certain demographic in mind. And so when we bring it to a state, we have that same a customer in mind. It's not like we take a highly medical product from Washington and try to bring it to a Massachusetts or an Illinois as a recreational product. So it, it helps us to understand based on what's working in Washington and the demographic that it's fitting there, where we're gonna slot it into Illinois and Massachusetts. And because we have so many brands in Washington, we can take a look at where the gaps are in Illinois and where the gaps are in Massachusetts and, and say, hey, we need th this market does not have an infused pre-roll that is that 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 they need. Right. And so let's let's bring this from Washington. Let's bring it into to Illinois. Let's bring it into Massachusetts. And so having that expanded breadth of products allows us to kind of pick and choose what we want to bring in and where based on the gaps that we have. And that's an experience kind of mindset, right? Like that is one from recognizing different variations in states and recognizing that there's different product portfolio mixtures, but also at the same time, probably understanding that we'd rather products like failure, we want to minimize the failure and the upside aspect, we rather mitigate that and say, okay, this is where we want to play. And if we can invest in new product portfolio, given this kind of mix in the gap, that's probably where the bigger upside and the reach could be in a new markets, right? Huge. I mean, efficiency is so important, especially now in a capital constrained environment. You can't just be shotgun approaching, putting all of your products in and hoping for the best. I mean, you really have to be as as uh, targeted with your cash as possible, because if you're going to launch 10 different brands and hope that, you know, that that some of them make it and some of them don't, you're just losing money on packaging. You're losing money on a lot of the, the fixed costs that go into that. So we really try to be deliberate into what we're introducing into the market because there's only so much cash to go around, right? I mean, we're, we're, we are stewards of our company's cash. Do you guys get to use the same uh, packaging in every state and just like make slight changes to it? Like, is that something that you can do with like stickers? Because I know that's a pain in the ass. I've heard. It's a pain in the ass. It is. It's definitely a pain in the ass. Most of the time, I mean, the child resistant packaging 
you can use, but what 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 gets different is the labels, yeah. right? So I can take like a island, which is one of our products, an island uh, label from Illinois and put it onto Massachusetts, unless like you said, you're ready to re-sticker uh, a bunch of different things that say Massachusetts on it, which is just, I would say a labor of love, but I'd be lying. <laughs> and there's nothing better than getting a, let's say, a Massachusetts labeled product in a different state and so on. Well, this seems... This yeah, there's nothing better than pulling the sticker back and seeing that it says Massachusetts on it when you're in Illinois. So yeah, you yeah. don't not want to do that i think so, it only happens in new york with california <laughs> products that, is, that may have happened i'm not gonna <laughs> confirm or deny it but at the end of the day like we could be in california or we could be in new york it's up to you to decide <laughs> <laughs> so when we're 5xing our facility in Matson, is that a strategic conversation internally because that's not a small jump that is a massive jump forward is that an internal one saying this is where we want to double down and we think there's big opportunity still in this state? Absolutely. I mean, it is the most important decision that our company has on has made in, in and that's going to be the most important decision of 2024, right? I mean, it's no small uh I mean, when you walk into this this new facility and you hear the it's so massive, you hear the echoing of the of of your voice on these walls, the responsibility really hits you right in the face, right? I mean, you have a massive facility that you need to be able to operationalize and you have to be thinking about it every single day because every day that it comes closer to, to coming to fruition is a day that you have to execute. You have to be be extremely intentional on, on what it is that you're doing. So yeah, that's the biggest thing for us uh, in in our portfolio for 2024 is getting this thing up and operational. We have done a really good job on our wholesale uh, to date in Illinois, where we have, uh, I think it's like, we've increased wholesale year over year trip. We've tripled it uh, from, from 23 to 22. And in an attempt to really get a, get our, our feelers out into every single dispensary that we can so that people can understand who we are, people can get to know us, people can understand our processes so that when we come to them with a full suite of, of products, they're not just going to say, hey, who the heck are you guys? So so that's been something that we've really put an emphasis on in 2023 was was making sure that we hit wholesale really hard in Illinois. And I'm happy to say that, you know, tripling it was, was no small feat. Hopefully this new facility can then triple it again. And so when you guys are building out this facility, is it like, a collaborative effort with your cultivation teams on both sides of the coast and everyone kind of throwing their two cents in, or did you guys like be like, okay, this is our team for this facility right now. And they can reach out if they have questions. Like how does that whole organizational structure look in terms of launching something massive like that? It's a great question. So we have so much institutional knowledge spread out throughout the country, right? Yeah. So it behooves us to lean on them. Obviously we have leads, right? We have individuals who are taking point on this. Yeah and who will be making these decisions ultimately. But we incorporate all of our strategic assets, all of our, our the brain tr trust, if you will, to say, okay, hey, look, here's what I know works. Here's what we've seen work in, in Washington. Here's what we've seen work in, uh, in Massachusetts. Here's what we've seen work in Illinois, which obviously is, is extremely important, right? Although our scale is small currently in Illinois, they have the, re the, the most accurate information as to what plants do given the environment outside in the Illinois in the Illinois environment. I mean, in the summers, it gets really hot and it's humid. In the winters, it is super cold and dry. And so we have to be able to leverage the 
intimate understandings from everyone to make this thing work because not one person's going to have the answer for all of it. No. And when you get to a scale like that, it's not as easy as just hiring 5X amount of people. You've right. got to have other tools and automations in place. So are there additional, let's say, assets that are being built into that facility in order to allow it to scale and to be able to grow the type of canopy that you're looking to? Yeah, absolutely. So one of the things that we did when we exited California was bring all of our machinery from California to the Illinois facility so that we could hit the ground running there. And there is, I mean, we are going to be extremely automated is going to be very much a manufacturing process. When you, when you agricultural manufacturing, when you look at Matson in, in 12 months from now. And so, yeah, it's, it is, you can't just like, and that's one of the reasons why we decided not to invest in a kitchen or a, a processing lab in Illinois with the scale that we had, because you're just going to have to either sell that thing or it's going to collect dust because you're not going to be able to create scale with a 40,000 square foot total facility and try to put stuff in into that when, you, when you're going into a 250,000 square foot facility. Were there specific strains that you guys like had picked out when you went into the facility? You're like, these are the ones that were growing. Kind of talk us through that whole like pheno hunt, if you will. And that's something that we have done really well in which is is pheno hunt. So yes, we have a list of strains that we are going to grow inside of that facility. And we have a list of strains that we are going to have specifically dedicated to our retail stores initially so that we can really generate that buzz and that unique, unique selling prop for, for those strains. But one of the things and one of the, the brands that I'm most excited about that's coming out of our cultivation facilities in both Illinois, Massachusetts, and Washington is a brand called The Hunt. And it's a it's an homage essentially to a pheno hunt. And we are essentially taking a bottoms-up approach where we're listening to our cultivators and they're saying, hey, look, we have these phenos that we're growing, that we're testing out. Why, why aren't we bagging these things and selling them? Because they're, there's good pro- quality product here. And so we started to actually create a product around that a brand around that and we have uh we've launched it in illinois and massachusetts and it's doing really well right i mean it's like small batch essentially where it's it's limited runs we're the consumer doesn't know if they're going to get it again or not because sometimes although it hits high thc or it is it's a high yielder maybe it takes too long or maybe the testing on it is coming back a little bit it's a little bit tricky for testing and so it's kind of an homage to back when you had your local drug dealer and you didn't know that the, the, what the weed was, but you were excited because you know that this guy grew good stuff, right? And so it's basically like creating this desire to look to see what is Forefront created this week or this month that I can consume that may not be back again. And so that has been huge for us. And we're taking all those phenos and we're taking the best of the best and we're bringing them into the Matson facility. I love it. It's like a combination of exclusivity, but you're also giving the customer the urgency and also allows your team to kind of experiment a little bit. But the one part that I want to push back on is you are an MSO, correct? Yes. So you're growing, call it high quality flour also? It is. And you know what? <laughs> this is a, this is <laughs> one of the things that comes with the longevity that I'm speaking of, right? Because it's like, in 2011, when we first started, I mean, even a little bit later than that, we had, you know, our cultivation processes in Washington was like, okay, low cost production, low cost production. Let's focus maniacally on that. But when you only look at that, 
what happens is quality starts to take a second seat. And that was something that about two years ago, we made a really seismic shift, which was that we can grow the, the lowest priced weed, but if people don't want to smoke it, who the hell cares, right? And so we had a massive shift to, okay, we need to re relook at how we're curing. We need to look at harvest. We need to look at drying. We need to understand how this affects the final product and do whatever it takes to understand how you make the product better. And so, yeah, we, <laughs> at first, we were just like low quality or low price, whatever quality. And we had a come to Jesus moment about two years ago where it's like, this is not the way to scale. Uh, and this is not how it's going to look at the end of the day, because at the end of the day, eventually everyone's going to get down to low cost. And then it's going to be, well, I'm going to pick what's the lowest cost and the best quality. And if you're not there, and if you haven't had those tried and true tribulations to understand how you get there, you're going to be screwed. How do you guys balance maintaining that quality with automation? Is that like a, a labor of love where it's like trial and error, right? Because like people think automation, you know, it's uh, hard to like correlate those. Yeah. Two. So like, what was that That's balance? And the reality now is that with, with technology developing the way it is, you're able to not just destroy the bud. You know, I mean, when at first, when we were taking these things and we, you know, we, we don't hand trim, we machine trim. But at first we had these machines that were just destroying, right? I mean, it was taking the trichomes right off. It looked like it was just like brown and 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 just like sticky and, and not in a good way. Uh, and, but, you know, with the advent of technology, you're actually able to get these things where they look and they smoke well, you're not knocking the trikes off and you're actually able to, to maintain a high tack. And then with, with same, same concept with the cure and the dry, we're now able to reabsorb those terps and they're able to, we're, we're not rushing them out the door, right? So yes, yeah, some of it is timing, right? Is is taking the time it it takes to, to make the product good. And some of it's just the development of technologies has allowed us to create a higher quality product with the same cost saving structures that, that we've come to, to really lean on. And I think the biggest benefit is that the consumer now gets a product at likely a lower cost because it costs your team less money to produce that high-end product. Exactly right. I mean, that's the goal, right? I mean, it's there is this perfect equilibrium point, point where it's the, the right price at the right quality and that's what we're always striving for now. And, and it's, it is a real focus. And that has enlivened our grow team. You know, I mean, our cultivation team and our cultivators are so excited to be able to be working with a company that's actually gives a shit about the quality, right? And that uh, allows us to retain talent, that allows us to inspire innovative ways to, to still maintain our cost structures, but to think on quality, right? When you give people this ability to be creative and the backing that we are standing by the quality of our product, it really opens people's minds and it opens people's people's eyes. And that's been huge for us. We've been able to retain really top quality talent because we've committed to this. Do you think product innovation comes from the bottom up instead of the top down? I think that it depends on who who's at the top, right? I think that uh, it really, the way that we do it is we know what we don't know. We know that at the executive level, we can run an efficient operation. We have cost structures in place, but are we 
heads down in the weeds at the same level as our dispensary employees or our cultivation employees who are looking at this and talking about this every single day. You know, I think that there's an argument to be made that they have a, they're talking about this every single day. They're in the facilities every single day. And so to not listen to them would be foolish. So we have uh, every quarter, we have a all hands where we bring the employees together and we talk about product innovation. And then we create a roadmap based on what those are. And some of those those ideas make it right. The hunt is a perfect example of that. And some of them don't. Right. And so this is this is a we aren't cocky enough to think that we've got all the answers. We know that this is a team team effort. And so we lean on them. During those all hands uh, meetings, is it kind of like someone's walking around with a notepad like, oh, that's a good idea. Oh, that's a good idea. Like, how does that whole like process like transpire? <laughs> yes. So it is it's virtual because we've got people all over. But what happens is, yeah, we've got individuals that were we obviously prep them and say, hey, come prepare. Yeah. Right. Come prepared with ideas. Don't just come and <laughs> sit here to listen. Please do have an idea or two and don't be afraid to share them. And it's kind of good because you, I like to start by saying ridiculous ideas. So people kind of get comfortable and they're like, okay, well, my idea is not going to be as ridiculous as that. As that. <laughs> Let me go ahead and say something because you really do need those people who work their butts off, but might be a little bit afraid to speak on these things to get comfortable. And then, yeah, we have we have a note taker and that individual creates a, a project plan with all these different ideas. And we then say, okay, this one we're gonna do this year, this one we're gonna table for for maybe next year when we open up Matson. And it is, it's a collaborative thing. It's a beautiful thing, but yeah, someone needs to be there taking notes. <laughs> I'm sure there's so many great ideas that come out and that's such a smart concept to be applied. It seems like something like what Facebook did where they adapted like the newsfeed, right? It came from one of those hacking events. I want to know what was one of the crazy ideas that you threw out there. You intentionally said, all right, I'm just going to anchor out here. Give us an example of one of those crazy yes. ideas. Okay. So here's a crazy idea that, that I have. And I do think that this will come to fruition, but it is. So I would love a, and I don't exactly know how this is going to happen biologically, but there's got to be a way to measure your endocannabinoid system, see where you're deficient in terms of terpenes and, and, and cannabinoids, and be able to then dial up something that would get you that exact mix of full spectrum cannabinoids and terpenes that allows you to get that homeostasis level where, because there's, there's a there's like a threshold where if you consume too much cannabis, then it's got a negative effect on you, right? And so we need to find that equilibrium point where individuals can consume the perfect amount, they're better human beings for it, and they can go about their day. And so, you know, you got to think about random weird things like that to get people kind of juiced up. I think it's possible, though. You know, it's just a wearable and someone's just got to build the calibration model to correlate the endocannabinoids in your blood to specific levels, you know? Any entrepreneurs out there, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> like, we, need, we need to hire a team of world-class scientists to do studies <laughs> on every single person. We're starting a clinical. We're going to need to do blood work. So. <laughs> we'll start it at 50 million. Is, is yeah, exactly. We'll, we'll be, change the industry. We'll hit the market by 2045. <laughs> <laughs> so... I want to get into some of the experience and then specifically EVP of revenue because I'm really fascinated by your title. So my understanding is you've launched 14 dispensaries, three cultivation centers in seven different states. That's right. Is there a certain state that has been more problematic than others and then has been on the other side? Has there been one state you think is your favorite state and has been the uh, let's call it smoothest? Yeah, no, I mean, so Massachusetts was 
a very difficult state from a regulatory standpoint because the local municipalities in Massachusetts uh, really had problems with allowing for cannabis to 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 be in, in their in their little neighborhoods. And so it took me three years to get the Brookline, Massachusetts dispensary open. Three years. Three years. And so that has been a really difficult state to operate. And now that we're open and, and running, you know, it's it's great. And I think that you're starting to see if you know anything about what's happening with the CCC in Massachusetts, it's like a dumpster fire over there. Uh, and so God, I hope that doesn't get me get me in trouble with the CCC. But but I don't think it, they're big listeners. It, really, <laughs> it has been it's very old school political there. And not to say that Illinois is not, but there was a lot of folks that said, you know, NIMBY's not in my backyard. We're not going to have this. I remember we had opened up a dispensary in Cambridge, right in, in Harvard Square, and we were operating it. And the sheriff came and closed us down. And we reopened because there was no reason why the, the local municipality was trying to revoke our our permit. And we had a lawyer who was working for us and called us up and said, hey, guys, I was just working on another case. And the local PD was telling me how they were going to raid a cannabis dispensary in Cambridge. And I asked him who it was. And it was it's you guys. So you guys cannot, you don't, do not re, and this was, I mean, this was 2018, 2017. It wasn't like this was in the beginning stages. I mean, they were going to, they were literally setting up to raid us because we were open with the proper permits and this Cambridge didn't want to give it to us uh, or they wanted to revoke it so that they could, they could hold off. And I think just last year, they finally reissued that permit, you know, five odd years or whatever years later, but it's just like, you're going to do what? And I remember back in 20, 2011, we actually would do raid training for our clients. Like, okay, if a raid happens, this is what you do. You know, this is how you operate. Do not do this. Please, you know, get comply. And I just, you know, 2018, 2017, I, I just didn't expect that. So Massachusetts has been incredibly difficult. But thankfully, we're open and we're maxed out there. So they can't give us too much shit. Illinois has been, I mean, it's the... In my opinion, the the level of price compression here, the amount of limited licenses, obviously I'm biased, right? But the amount of limited licenses has really helped us and helped the industry, right? I mean, you're looking and you're looking to states like next door, like Michigan, where they've uh, unloaded an unlimited amount of licenses, essentially, if you if you the municipality wants it. And yes, their their top line revenue is amazing, right? It's it's in the it's it's. I think even bigger than Illinois. But when you look at the success rate of these dispensaries and what they're selling their products for and the cost structure associated, it's a it's a mess. It's like a loss. There's only a if you can you have to be able to operate at volume. And if you can't, you're sunk and you're seeing so many places go out of business. And that's only going to really benefit those who are well capitalized. So so I've got I've, I've definitely got a lot to say about limited licenses versus versus just unlimited licenses and how that really truly affects a business. And so Illinois, I think, did it really well where they limited the licenses and they're doing a strategic rollout so that pricing doesn't just drop through the roof or <laughs> through the floor. And, and that has been really helpful. The ability for us to max out at 10 licenses, I think, is a good, a good number. I mean, and if you look at the revenue that the... OGs of the Illinois market, like the Cruscos and GTIs do. I mean, their lion's share is Illinois, right? And so 
we're really, really excited about what Illinois has to offer us. We do think obviously price compression is going to happen here, but it's going to happen at a slower rate uh, because of the way that the regulatory structure was was rolled out. So Massachusetts, difficult. Uh, Illinois, fun. Is there any other states that you guys were looking at going into and just decided not to because it was just going to be too big of a regulatory headache? You know, I think that we... In the past, we have looked at other states like uh, Missouri, right? I mean, Missouri was one where we were just like, okay, are we going to go into this? Uh, Oklahoma, we looked at and you're just like, ah, you know, I don't think that this is going to be good in the long term for us. And so we decided against those. But really now it's it's we are so we are diving so deep into Illinois. That's that's the name of the game for us in 24. It seems like that's going to be like the feeling amongst like the the bigger tier companies is that it's locking down the current assets and making sure to fortify the situation. Felt like the last year was like efficiency and everyone like getting the capital turned off. And now with maybe capital coming back, everyone's like, we're doubling down on our assets and we are building the protection. Just it seems like the industry's taking a really different approach. And now there's an aggressive understanding of like, this is what we're doing well. This is how we're going to excel. Yeah, no, it it is absolutely that's what's happening. I think that although last year was tough from a a capital standpoint, the reality is we got so much more efficient on all these things. So when the spigot turns back on, which it already has for us, I mean, we secured 10 million to go after some licenses in Illinois. When the spigot turns on fully, though, the reality is, is we are going to be so much more profitable, you know, profitable, hopefully, right? I mean, with 280E, hopefully that really comes comes to fruition. But uh, the reality is it's we've gained so much knowledge because we we had to, right? Because there was no other way to operate but being efficient. And so, yeah, last year was that was how do you make it efficient? How do you do more with less? This year is going to be for us, especially, how do you strengthen the core assets that you have? And how do you make sure that when this all shakes out, you are extremely well positioned in the states that you think are going to be the best moving forward? That was perfectly said. All right, so let's dive into your role because I'm fascinated by the title and then how you fit because revenue to me can be on the internal side with all the cogs or it can be kind of customer facing with understanding pushing up the margins. So where do you fit and is it both? I've been in this role now for seven months. I I cut my teeth in retail operations. Obviously, I helped to open up the the grows, but I was by no means a grower or, or really involved in how to maximize efficiencies at the grow. So I've been really trying to study that now. Uh, and it's both. The answer is both. It's really for for me. And it's, you know, the revenue as a title is kind of, you know, it's, there's a lot of responsibility that, that goes up to that. It's pretty and, odd. And it, you're, you're damn right it is. And so the reality for me is I've been focusing my first six, six or seven months now on external revenue on how do I increase the revenue from a wholesale standpoint, which I think we did really well in, in 2023, especially in, I mean, in both states, in, in Massachusetts and Illinois, um, in Massachusetts, it was, it we, it wasn't three X, but it was substantial in terms of, of a wholesale increase. How do you increase revenue from a wholesale standpoint? How do you maintain and increase revenue from a retail standpoint, especially if you're not growing that retail footprint? How do you maintain revenue with falling prices? How do you speak to your customer base and understand your customer base and maintain them and then grow that, right? Because look, you're not all of a sudden going to get your average ticket from $60 to $100. What you're going to have to do is incrementally either stabilize that 
find ways to increase it, but really you're gonna have to find more bodies. You're gonna have to get more people to understand who you are. You're gonna have to differentiate yourself uh, and, and have them understand why choose you over somebody else. And it definitely helps when you're vertically integrated, right? And you have the availability to have a wide breadth of products. Um, and so the first half has been, how do you understand where where can I maximize revenue? Yeah, can we leverage our in, in, inside of the retail stores? Can we leverage that and start monetizing that with other wholesale partners? Do we even want to do that? And so asking myself those questions and being able to, to have answers that can be shown via a growth in revenue is has been the name of the game so far. Yeah, I think that's really well said. And I think understanding the cultivation center, right? Because that is an expensive investment. But also for your standpoint, like if you're looking to accelerate revenue, you need opportunities internally in order to get to some of those projections. So squeezing out revenue of opportunities that may, others may not be aware of. Can you give us an example of a time where you did this or saw something and shared and said, hey, this is something where we can squeeze it out? Yeah. So right now we're looking, and I, I just touched on this briefly, but we're looking, we're opening up an additional dispensary right now in or we're a week away from construction on our third dispensary in Illinois. And then we've got a couple more subsequently after that. And when we were looking at how to lay this, this sales floor out and what to do uh, in terms of, can you monetize the sales floor? You know, looking at the West coast and seeing ways in which they've done it. And then looking at the Midwest and the East coast and seeing ways in which they haven't done it. We said, okay, let's create this sales floor so that we have the availability to monetize specific areas for specific vendors in an effort to, and it doesn't have to be, hey, you're going to give us cash, but it could be, hey, you're going to offer us a product, uh, a better discount of a product when we highlight your, your, your specific brands in this area. And so that's one of the ways that at least top of mind, that's like one of the, the most recent things that we've done is, okay, how do you monetize this? How do you look to what you've seen in, in the states like Washington and other, other West Coast states? And how do you be at the forefront of that, pun intended, to really maximize the revenue that you're seeing out of the retail locations? How much do margins have to do with uh, specific product placement and all that? Is it one where you're like, hey, this product only has a 5% margin. It doesn't even go on the shelves, right? Like, is that a lot of the conversations that you guys have? Yeah. And it's not even like it doesn't even go on the shelves. It's also like, how do you position that from an e-commerce standpoint too, right? I mean, 60% of our customers are ordering before they even get here. And if you have, uh, you know, your least profitable product that someone who's creating menu uh, really loves, you're, you're going to shoot yourself in the foot, right? So it, it becomes a how do you market this not from just an inside the store standpoint, but from an external or, or e-commerce standpoint, so that really when someone is looking at your menu, you are showing them the products that are best from a margin standpoint and the products that you think actually will work given the specifics that they're that you know that you know, right? 70% when you combine flour and pre-roll, that's the that's your biggest market. Why would you be putting tinctures at the top of your your menu then? So it definitely definitely has as an effect on that. And that's when I talk about, maybe it's not about, hey, you're going to cut us a $10,000 check every month for this product placement. It's, hey, you're going to offer us a 20% discount on all of this specific flower brand or whatever it is, as long as we have this specific product placement for you guys. Yeah, If not, you're on page 62 of that menu. That's right. <laughs> you do not want to be on page 62 of a menu. You really don't. <laughs> the only person that's going there is that value shopper, like, hmm, searching. Yeah. So yep. What is the most expensive lesson you've ever learned? That's a great question. I think that the, and this kind of harkens back to what I was saying earlier about quality. 
We launched a brand in Illinois when we weren't ready, the, the product quality didn't meet what the brand's value proposition was, right? I mean, this was going to be, this is our high tier brand. We are going to put a high tier product in there. And we didn't exactly meet that, right? And that's an expensive mistake to make because then all of a sudden you have to either pull that or you have to pause until you're ready to, to really to go at it again. And so that's definitely one that's been very expensive. But I think that the reality is, and I don't know if you're teaming up for this or not, but, but I'm going to say it is California. I mean, the California market was freaking tough, man. I mean, when prices for distillate fluctuate as they do in California, it's hard as hell to make a viable business out of that. And when you look to see it, like how these businesses are doing it, you scratch your head and you're like, how, how are they doing this? So that was a really expensive, I mean, thankfully we were able to take a lot of our equipment and move it to Illinois, but there was a lot of time and brain power that went into California that we had to just essentially lose. What's the biggest lesson you learned there though, that you guys took to Illinois, just the equipment? And yes. So the equipment that we created in California, it was, I mean, we had like German scientists coming, you know, who speak <laughs> only like there were these guys, like we had to fine tune and calibrate products uh, and machinery that took us a long time to really understand. And you have to be able to get the sizing right. You have to be able to wrap this thing correctly. And so that is something that takes time and takes a lot of effort and, and money. I mean, you just fly these German guys back and forth was, 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 was real deal. And so the reality is that we can take that and apply it instantly into Illinois because of the effort that we put into California. So that's a win. Huge. That it really is. I mean, we're going to be able to create these products so efficiently and at scale, everybody better be ready for us. Dream smoking session, three people dead or alive. Oh, okay. So, you know who I'd like to smoke with? Jesus. All right. That would be I like wild. That, that would be wild. He's got he's got a lot to say. Um, I would like to smoke with Bob Marley. I think that that would have, that would be really transformational just to understand his his ideas on on Rastafarianism and, and just the culture in general. That would be huge. And then one third other person. I'd love to smoke with you guys. Appreciate that. You can only choose one of us though. Oh shit! Well, I guess East Coast it is. Oh. Just, uh, <laughs> respectfully to Bob Marley, you said to be transformational to smoke with him, but not Jesus. Oh, well, then, you know, Jesus is a given. That's, it's that's implied. A, it's yeah, implied. That's <laughs> I just had to ask yeah. to clarify that because, like, you put oh, yeah, transformational yeah. on Bob Marley, and I was like, wow, Jesus. That's How did you walk on water? How are you doing I mean, this? Those are probably not a simple answer. First thing is, cut water. <laughs> We're going to need some wine before I yeah. offer this. <laughs> <laughs> Let's start with the first miracle first, please. Yeah, thank you. You can. And I will any... enjoy the story with my wine now. <laughs> it's pre-roll. <laughs> if you could put anything on a billboard, metaphorically speaking, to get a message to billions of people, it could be an image, a quote, a word, or something that inspired you. What is the first thing that comes to mind? I think naming your fears and leaning into those things is huge, right? I mean, because I deal with hundreds of employees on, on a daily basis, right? And our, my goal as a leader is to be able to get the best out of them 
whether that's for us as a company, but mostly for themselves. And there are so many doubts in people's minds and that doubt leads to fear. And if you can just name that fear, understand it, embrace it and lean into it, you're going to be so much better and stronger as a person. I mean, it's a muscle, right? That you need to really be able to flex in order to get the best version of yourself. Because if not, you're you're limiting the only life that you have. And, and that is such a, it's, it's such a gift we all have, right? And so to be able to, if I could remove doubt and fear from from people and allow them to be the best versions of themselves, I think that this world would be an amazing place. That really well said. What question do you wish more people asked you? I wish people really understood and asked me how cannabis really affects their body. You know, how cannabis reacts to your neurological system and how it binds to these receptors in your body. Because when you start to really dig deep into the understanding of what this product is, then you really understand how transformational, did it again, that it will be, right? I mean, because this product has, it's already, the acceptance rate is at like 80, 90% for medical, right? But when you start to really understand how it affects you, it starts to dispel the the myth of, oh yeah, well, I'm okay with people getting a little high and that, but it's not about, you know, just getting high. It's about understanding how it makes you well. So I wish people really started to, to dive deep into the science behind your endocannabinoid system and how that affects your body. Well said. All right. Prediction time. Gabe, what emerging trends or market shifts do you anticipate will most significantly impact the cannabis industry in the next two years? Shit, man. Well, uh, two years, hopefully less than than two years with the rescheduling. Uh, I think that there's a lot of quality debate on whether this should be a reschedule or a deschedule. But the fact of the matter is we are talking about rescheduling, right? It can be descheduled at a different time to stop the train to try to get this thing descheduled would, would be just doing a disservice to the years and years and effort that so many people put in to get us here. So I think that being able to have 280E go by the wayside will be huge. Um, I think separately, which is which is not going to happen with, with rescheduling is when publicly traded companies, and obviously th- this is this is for for publicly traded companies, when we can uplist, that'll be huge, right? When we're able to list on major exchanges, um, when you, I mean, when you're able to, uh, get institutional investments, uh, from, from major, major players, that's going to be really, really huge because when you look at the underlying financials of our companies, they're, they're solid. They're so good. And if you understand and take multiples from other comparables and place them on, on the cannabis industry, we should be, you know, three, four X where we are in terms of stock price. And so I think that that's going to be huge. That obviously gives us leverage to expand and gives us leverage to do a bunch of different things. So I think 280 is going to be huge. I don't have a crystal ball to know how it's going to be rolled out, but I hope it's done um, with states rights in mind. And then being able to uplist will be another huge one as well. Massive. Kellen. I mean, I'm just going to piggyback on everything you said. I think rescheduling, the implications it has on 280E, as well as I think a lot of people uh, think that the Safe Banking Act was like the save all for getting institutional funding when in reality, a lot of the big banks do business internationally, right? And safe banking doesn't move the needle for their businesses in all these other countries. But rescheduling does have implications for like the National Narcotics Act. 
So that will allow institutions into the game more than they are right now, at least like publicly more than they are, right? Institutional funds. So I think those two catalysts are probably the most important for the entire industry. I mean, instantly give a bunch of people more money from 280E and now you allow them to go access normal traditional business tools like capital equipment loans and these kind of things. I think it's an absolute game changer. What do you think, Brian? Take a little different approach. I think what would be really awesome would be that since I shop here in New York, if I could understand what products are similar when I go to Chicago and visit Gabe stores, or if I go to California or Washington, it'd be wonderful to know, like, you like these products in New York, your products similar to what you like. I think the ability to cross those state lines uh, legally, right, and be able to understand which products kind of are what you're looking for would be really helpful as the industry starts to expand outside of these state silos into a more, let's call it, global um, industry. I think that'd be something that'd be really interesting for me because it, it's it's always like a guest estimate buys, right? Like sometimes I pick up a product that I love, other times it's a product that's okay. And I just wanted to know if there's a way to mitigate that because there's endless choices in so many brands that it's hard to make those decisions when you do walk into a dispensary for the first time in another state and you're just not sure what to buy. Yeah, and I think that the the ability to deschedule a reschedule then deschedule will will allow for more sophisticated technology to enter the space will allow for a lot of the things that any other traditional retail or manufacturing company has that is so difficult to have right now i mean the look the, the people in the cannabis space on the tech side are trying their best but the reality is it's they're, they're still hamstrung by so many different the same things that we are they're hamstrung by even if they're not plant touching and so i do i am very excited about the ability to have technology advancements from a POS side, from an e-commerce side, from a customer segmentation side, from even like a customer communication side, that is going to be very, very huge. And I think that that's something I look forward to as well. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's wild when the terms of service say cannabis related businesses, because it's not even just cannabis business. It's now anybody in that circle next to the circle they've just deemed in that same bucket, which is just outrageous. And I'm talking about you, Stripe. Yeah, shout out to Stripe. Thank you. Or not shout out Stripe. T shout out Stripe. Hey, what? <laughs> We're not shouting about Kellen. So, Gabe, for our listeners, let's <laughs> uh, edit that out. Gabe, for our listeners, they want to get in touch and they want to check Forefront's products. Where can they find you? What I would recommend is our retail site is missiondispensaries.com. So if you're in the Massachusetts area, if you are in the Illinois or the Washington area, or I guess Washington would be cultivation, but Illinois and Massachusetts, please go to missiondispensaries.com. You get to see all of the different products that we we offer. If you want to look at the, the company as a, from a parent company, go to forefrontventures.com. That's the number four, then frontventures.com. And it, yeah, I think that there is... There's a lot of really exciting things to come in Illinois, and we're continuing to innovate in Massachusetts, and we're, we're bringing all of that from Washington. So please do keep a keep an eye on us. Awesome. We'll link it on the show notes. Thanks for taking the time. This was a lot of fun. Yeah, thanks for your time. Likewise. Take care, guys. Guys, if you've enjoyed this podcast over the last few years, can you please take three minutes or less and leave us a quick review on Apple or Spotify? All reviews make a massive difference for us and help other people like you find this podcast. From the bottom of our hearts, thank you. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com.
Here's a preview of one of our other shows. I'm Larry Mishkin, and I'd like to invite you to join Rob Hunt and me on our weekly podcast, The Deadhead Cannabis Show. Each week, we explore the latest cannabis and jam band news and reminisce with other deadheads and jam band lovers about the great musical acts that we've seen and heard. Check out a new episode every Monday.